Now we are in the book of 1 Kings 19, the first two verses. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Man, that's ominous. That was good. Good morning. It's good to be here with everybody. I'm very excited for today, so I'm just going to dive in because I have a lot. So, I, um, July 31st of this year, 2022, we celebrated the birth of a future celebrity. Any guesses? Now, it's not like a baby that was born that I'm just like prophetically saying something. No, on July 31st of 2022 was the birth of none other than George Jetson. Yeah, so that's, remember George? Good old guy. Show based in 1962, 100 years later, was uh, 2062. He was 40 years old at the time, so you do the math, there it is. Now, the idea that George Jetson was only 40 years old is terrifying to me. Because I always looked at him like some old guy. And I'm now almost that old guy. But so George, like um, for many of us, uh, was the part of a, a series of shows that were all futuristic in nature. And all these futuristic shows were telling us about what the future was going to be like. And a couple years ago, I had this realization that we were living in the future. And the date specifically of that was October 21st, 2015. Now, now, not only was that the day after my birthday, but why did that day of all days help me realize that we were in the future? It was the day that Doc Brown and Marty McFly flew into the future to see hoverboards and crazy tech and a whole lot more. And what happened on that day is it struck me. I was like, okay, 2015, let's do the math. We're the same distance from 1985 that they were from 1955. And now that's seven years ago. So for all of us parents who are like, man, 1980s is so long ago. Well, it is. And that's why my wife and I are throwing a Y2K party for our birthdays. We'll tell you more about that. It's I may show up the next day with frosted tips. Just saying. Okay, but we're living in the future. And we're living in the future that all those shows were telling us about. Now let's back up for a second. What was it about modern America that was so fascinated about future? Now all of these shows were imagined and supported with a specific understanding of the world. There was a philosophical framework that is so, like, baked into our society, it's hard to even imagine that there's another way to look at the world. And so to keep it simple, I'm going to call it this. I'm going to call it progressive utopia. Okay? This is what it says. It's the world is progressively mo moving towards a more utopian society. Where, and once we make sure that people have the right education, the right resources, and the right opportunities... Then, and only then, there can be human flourishing. 
According to Mark Sayers, it says, he says this, this model presumes that with the right conditions and influences, humans are perfectible. You hear that? Perfectible. And that some kind of human utopia is possible. Now, underneath that, there's actually a religious and a secular framework for this. Now, I want to be really, really clear. That type of understanding of the world does not come outside of a Christian point of view. There's a historian, a guy named Tom Holland. He's an English guy. He has this thick book called Dominion, not Spider-Man, another Tom Holland, okay? So what he says is that this Christian worldview is so baked into our society that there's so many Christian assumptions that it's impossible to get to that uh, philosophical view without Christianity. And so in many ways, that's because it is based on a biblical framework. What does our story, the Bible, end with? It ends with a new heaven and a new earth where God comes and renews and restores all creation, where there's no more tears and pain and death. And so we are going towards utopia. We're working our way towards that. The perfect garden, the perfect society that we were designed to live in from a Christian point of view, according to the Bible, will happen under the kingship of Jesus and only under his kingship. But there's also a secular framework. It says that there once was a point in history where religion was at the height of its day. But now we're in a guaranteed walk towards its demise. Like, have you ever felt like, oh my goodness, there's, it's just more likely that more people will believe that what we believe is insane. And we're just, it's inevitable that we're working towards that. And what the secular framework says is as religion goes less, the likelihood of this human utopia is going to happen. Because religion, and according to this framework, is the source of the problem. Not, not the source of its creation, but the source of the problem. So therefore, less religion, more utopia. In essence, without going too far into this, there, the, our society is attempting to enjoy the principles and fruits of God's kingdom without God's king. We're trying to experience the fruits of justice, of peace, of prosperity, of redemption, but we're doing it without the king whose rule actually does that. So, the question for us, as those that live in the future, are we experiencing the utopian society that we were told about? In some ways, there's been a lot of economic progress. There's no way you can decline that in the last hundred years, the economic progress of our society. So, yeah, sure. On the external, in some ways, especially in our country. But the shortcomings are starting to show up in the personal lives of those living in that society. So according to recent research, 48% of Americans were feeling depressed, down, or hopeless in the last three years. That's one in two. At one point in the pandemic, upwards of 60% of adults experienced the frequency of feeling nervous, anxious, or on edge. About 53% of Americans said they experienced, quote, not being able to stop worrying or, or stop worrying about control at least several days during the week. 
87% of people surveyed said their mental health was greatly affected by what they felt like was, quote, a constant stream of crises without a break over the last two years. Maybe you can relate to that. Now throw on top of that those of us who are parents. Just a little bit more stress. More than 70% of parents said they were fearful that the pandemic has impacted kids' social, academic, and emotional development. And 68% said that they were concerned about children's cognitive and physical development. Among parents of teenagers, 65% that they felt that their children could have benefited from seeing a counselor or other mental health professional throughout the pandemic. In essence, we are in the age of anxiety. It is an anxious society we live in today. This is the fruit of a lot of the societal outgoings. But this is not just happening out there. This is going on in our lives as well. How does this look when you bring this and all, to all of us as a collective of God's people, Soma Federal Way? Now, we have to realize we're less than one year removed from the biggest shutdown our city saw because of COVID. That was January of 2022. We're only, only six months away from no longer wearing masks or needing vaccination cards to go to restaurants. That in and of itself is anxious and stressful. And I'm just going to keep going. As I've shared in the last few weeks, coming back from my sabbatical, there has been some significant difficulties and challenges and sadness with the loss of some key families who have been with us for a very long time. And so as a result, the things that we work towards, if you want to look at KPIs for those business people among us, key performance indicators, what's the fruit of what we do? We're looking for our goals are healthy and reproducing disciples, healthy and reproducing leaders, healthy and reproducing communities, and healthy and reproducing church plants. That's, all, that's what we're all working towards. Everything we do is towards that. So if you look right now, those numbers are lower than they've ever been. We're anxious in our society. We're stressed by all that's going on in our world. And we come to be part of a gathering as a church that doesn't have the critical mass it once held. What in the world are we as God's people supposed to do in the midst? How are we to be agents of shalom amid anxiousness and stress? How are we to be a resistance of peace? Now, if you look and you just look at the indicators, all pointers, oh, excuse me, all indicators are pointing in one direction, down. And yet we will see that this is the absolute most opportune time for God. When God's people get their absolute most dependent, when they get their most needy, when they even get desperate, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, God tends to partner with them and do remarkable and wonderful things in our midst. So that's our prayer. And in a lot of ways, that is what we'll be focusing on during the next six weeks in this series that we're calling Journey to Renewal. So over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and what his journey and how his journey 
towards experiencing and encountering God gives us all, individually and corporately, a roadmap for what it means to be renewed as God's people. Now, there's going to be six stages or places or patterns that we're going to be uh, breaking out over the next six weeks. And here's a list of them really quick. There's Elijah doing his work. He's, he's going about it, and we're going to talk about that in 1 Kings 18. But then there's a catalytic moment, something that happens that takes him out of the normal and makes him go on this journey towards renewal. He then has to come to an end of himself. He has to come to the point where he's so dependent, so needy, that he actually is willing to do what God asks him to do. After that, he gets some rest, physical, emotional, spiritual um, rest, which leads him to an experience of the wilderness that is disorienting, is upside down. He doesn't know what's left and right, up and down. But it's the place where God uses in solitude so that he is fully prepared to encounter God. And so he encounters him. He's changed. He becomes a new person because of what God did in his life so that he can ultimately receive guidance and re-enter into the work of his prophetic ministry. So these are six patterns. They're places along the way, and there's practices that are going to go along with it. So really quick, um, this, is just, this series is just a primer. In no way am I expecting in the six weeks that every single one of us are going to go through this full journey. It's just to prime the pump, get us thinking about it, and give us a framework about the journey that you and I need to experience in the days ahead. Also, this is not sequential. This isn't step one, step two, step three, step four. Sometimes God does that, but oftentimes there's a lot of overlap. And that's because this is not a quick journey either. This is a journey that for Elijah took months. But in some ways, you're in a wilderness experience for years while you go through these days of. So there's not a specific length of time. And this is also not a passive thing. If you want to be renewed, if you want to be refreshed by Jesus, if you want to be empowered for what the next thing God has for you, it does not come from you sitting around and just waiting for God to show up. There are active practices that we have to engage in if we are going to partner with God. So, before we dive into the text, let me clarify something. What do I mean by renewal? Now, this term is often interchanged with the word revival or awaken. So, many charismatic circles point back to revivals um, of the past century. Um, in, and in the West, the awakening movements of the 18th and 19th century. Uh, 18th and 19th century. So think of the first and second great awakening, right? We tend to think of that. Revivals, you tend to think of the outward expression of them. Um, in, in charismatic circles, it's people falling on the floor and speaking in tongues. Like there's a lot of, which I'm not going to down talk at all. We'll get to that. But there's a, there's a connotation that comes with those words. So I want to make sure we're, I'm really clear on why I use the word renewal. And I like how Mark Sayers defines it, and you'll see it on the screen. It's two parts. It's first, the refreshment, release, and advancement that individuals, groups, churches, and cultures experience when they are aligned with God's presence. Really important. It's a refreshment. It's, it's life. It's to be 
released into something new. But it's aligned with God's presence. And secondly, it's the presumption of our God-given purpose to partner with God fully, participating in his plan to flood the world with his presence. This is God first, primarily, stirring and moving in his people, refreshing them, reviving them, bringing them to life. It starts there. And then there's the outward expression. It then shows up in how we bring God's presence to the world. Okay? So revival, and I like this word, revival in turn is when renewal occurs on a large scale, bringing significant advancement, growth, and kingdom fruit to a city, people group, movement, region, or nations. Revival is when renewal goes viral. When one person experiences a renewal in God, they encounter God in new and profound ways. They enter into a community that then has the opportunity to be renewed in ways as a community. Then as a church, we can be renewed as the, the people of God. And if that happens more and more in this circle and then across other churches, then it has a viral component to it and it breaks out in our city. That, brothers and sisters, is gospel saturation. That's what we long for. And oftentimes... That's what we focus on. But in the next six weeks, we're going to pause, not on doing that, but say, let's go back to the first things, which is what? Each of us experiencing the renewal that only God can bring. Encountering him in ways that you are refreshed, released, and advanced. So it's with that, we now turn to the story of Elijah. So we're going to be focusing in the next six weeks specifically on chapter 19. Now, for those of you that are new to the Bible, let me give you a brief understanding of where Elijah is in the story of God. After God created the whole world, his people rebelled against him and, and as a result took on death. He didn't want people to remain in death. So what he did is he chose a specific family in which this family would be a blessing to the whole world. This family grew and got large and ended up as a large people enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. After that time, God miraculously set them free and brought them into a new land, a new place that was to be their home. This was the promised land. God's desire was for him to be the leader of this new people. But they desired to have a human king to lead them. So God gave them up for their desires, and he gave them a king by the name of Saul. At the time of Saul, there were 12 tribes all united under one king. In the years that followed, there was a civil war of sorts within the kingdom, where 10 tribes of the north became what is known as the kingdom of Israel. And then there was a, a kingdom in the south that was made up of two tribes that was known as the kingdom of Judah. Now in the south, they sometimes had good kings and they sometimes had bad kings. Up north, they always had bad kings, always had bad leaders, always doing bad things. Each of them had these people called prophets that would come alongside the king and the prophet's job was to challenge the king to be faithful to what God had told them to do. 
That was the prophet's job, covenant faithfulness. So in the south, uh, there's this uh, image up here. It's going to be hard to see, but um, that, I'm sorry, the, the graph, if you will. There, you can see that there, in the divided kingdom, there's all these different uh, prophets that go to them at different times. In the south, you have prophets like Isaiah. You have prophets like Ezekiel and Habakkuk. These are all books of the Bible that would, uh, they were speaking to the southern kings. But then you had uh, prophets that spoke to the northern kings. Now imagine being that guy for a second. Your job is to be a prophet, to challenge a king that always disobeyed God. Doesn't sound like a highly desirable job, right? Like you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. That's Elijah. Elijah was a prophet to a king in the north. And this king is the king of Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Now Elijah is a significant character in the Bible. You know your New Testament. You know that when God shows up in the transfiguration, Elijah shows up. Okay? But it's funny. There's not much said about his history. You don't know where he, all you know he's from Tishbite. That's it. We, know, we don't know his background. We don't know his calling into prophetic ministry. We know nothing. But there is one thing we know about him. And it's his physical features. You don't even get Jesus' physical features. Second Kings, we find out that Elijah was a hairy man with a leather belt. So, if you are a hairy man with a leather belt, you may be called into prophetic ministry. Just throwing that out there. That's all we know. And yet, what does he do? Now, when he shows up, 1 Kings 18, let me give you a little bit of a background to 1 Kings 18 because it, it sets up all that he's doing. Elijah is extremely successful. Everything he touches is gold for a while. He calls down a drought on, uh, on God's people for three years. He helps a widow and her son who are about to run out of food by multiplying, multiplying the food, and they never run out. He discovers a, one, a woman's son is ill, prays for him, and this son comes back to life. But the high peak of his ministry, the best of the best of what Elijah does, is in a showdown in what's on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. So let me set the stage. Three years into a drought, in a culture that relies on rain for food, you can imagine how desperate God's people are. There's an intense famine. The king, King Ahab, was a man who never followed God. His wife, Jezebel, you may have heard of a Jezebel spirit, or you may have heard Jezebel used negatively. It's because of her. She's the one that kind of really wore the pants in the relationship. Like, she's the one that drove Ahab to do vile things. They led uh, Israel to worship this false god named Baal. And so there's this showdown. 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of another god named Asherah, okay? 850 prophets on one side, and Elijah on the other. One guy against 850 prophets. This was the thing. There's a bull, and their job was to pray that God would uh, send down fire to consume the bull. So Elijah, being the hairy gentleman that he was, allowed the other team to go first. So 850 prophets wailing, before their God. There's even uh, parts of the story where they're cutting.
hurting themselves because that's part of what worship for their God was. And so there's blood flowing all over the bowl. Halfway through the day, nothing happens. So Elijah starts mocking him. I think this is a biblical example of sarcasm. Like sarcasm in the Bible? Yeah, Elijah does it. But to evil people, so we can't go there. So here he is. And, and so Elijah's mocked him, like, where's your God? Is he on the bathroom? Is he, going, is he asleep? Where, what's up? What's he up to? So then Elijah shows up. He says, okay, it's my turn. And he ups the ante. Bulls on this, uh, this, this table. And then he has his servants to build a trench around the table. And then he says, hey, you see those jars over there that are full with water? I want you to pour them on the sacrifice. Four different times. Each of these jars Ultimately, the total amount of water was about 50 gallons of water. So in a time of drought, you can imagine 48 to 50 gallons of water is kind of a big deal. And he says, pour it all on there. So 850 prophets versus one. And Elijah just says this simple prayer. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, you, Yahweh, are God and that have turned their hearts back. What happens? Fire just comes down. But it doesn't just consume the bull. It doesn't even just consume the altar. But it consumes the rocks, the dust, and even all the water in the trenches. Okay, so up, imagine, you're Elijah for a moment. You're doing your job, and you're experiencing the greatest successful moment that you've ever experienced before. I mean, this is where we all long to be, right? We all want to be at that place. I mean, think of your family. Think of your job. Think of what God has called you to. You want to be able to say, man, look at all the goodness that has come from my work, from what I've been able to do, where things are going well, things are running smoothly. You're able to execute your vocation at the best of your ability. All your KPIs and all the fun stuff are just rolling, right? Work life, family life, church life, all working in sync, and you're experiencing the fullness of what God has for you. I mean, that's what we all are wanting. That's what we're all doing everything we can to strive for. And that's where Elijah is right now, cloud nine. But we know that that does not last forever. He's going about doing what God has called him to do, and then something changes. There's a catalytic moment where what once worked no longer works. In verse 3, it says, then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. He was, there was a, a fearful moment. Think of the emotional strain that must have been on Elijah. I mean, going from the height of where you were to the point where you are running desperately for your life, where you feel like all is going well, and then maybe in your case, it's the, you got news that was absolutely devastating to the rest of the world. Where you went from the height of joy to the depth of sadness, like that. These can be catalytic moments 
where we will start, when we change from relying on our success and start to rely on God. Sometimes these are drastic moments like hearing news of cancer. Other times, though, it can be often more subtle. It can be ways that you were once experiencing God, and then all of a sudden, those ways of experiencing Him no longer work. It could even be you've been a, a Christian for a long time, you've been reading your Bible in prayer, there used to be environments and things that you once did that were just so life-giving, and you've been faithful to them, and all of a sudden you find yourself kind of dry. And you're like, what's changed? And you, and you can honestly say, nothing. It could be subtle in the way that you're hitting a new stage of life where the energy you once had has shifted, and you just physically can't do what you once did. And maybe it's even that your coping mechanisms, the things that you used to go to to hide the sadness and the things that are actually going on in your internal world, it may be that those things are no longer doing what they once did. For Elijah and for us to experience true renewal, we must be removed from our normalcy and our successes to recognize our desperation for God's move. Let's say that again. For Elijah and us to experience true renewal, we must be removed from our normalcy and our success to recognize our desperation for God to move. And that's where Elijah is. Now his spark, it was easy for him. He had no choice. Go or die. But that's not often what it's like for us. Renewal is something that you and I often want. It's something we long for. And yet, we find an internal resistance towards pursuing the very thing that we want and long for. An, an author named Ruth Haley Barton, uh, whose book Introduction to Silence and Solitude uh, played an unbelievably important role in my sabbatical, but also gives some framework for this series. She talks about what she calls the, quote, push-pull phenomenon. She says this, it seems no matter how well I understand the necessity of renewal, no matter how much I feel drawn to it, no how, matter how much well I plan for it, there are forces working against it, both externally and internally. We, at the same time, can feel both the desire, the pull towards being renewed by God, and find ourselves pushing it away without even knowing why we're doing that. It's the push-pull phenomenon. We're pulled towards it, and yet something in us pushes it away. So I want to focus on just what I think are two, one push and one pull that I think draws us towards renewal. Now, the first push is fear. And this is found in the text. The text says that Elijah was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life. Now, I want you to understand that he didn't, just, he didn't just jog. This man ran for his life. So let me show you that map for a second. It may be a little bit hard to see, but you see that brown part that says West Manasseh. You see that little section that kind of goes out into the Mediterranean Sea? That's where Mount Carmel was, okay? So you see that little middle part called Issachar? At the bottom of that, there's a town called Jezreel. That's where he is at the beginning of this story. 
Then he gets word that uh, Jezebel and Ahab are coming after him. He runs from Jezreel all the way down in the middle of Simeon to a town called Beersheba. That is 125 miles plus a day's journey. And he makes it there in one day. Now, chapter 18 gives us a little clue that this is probably supernaturally empowered. So I'm not saying start running. But what it tells, and so I don't want to focus on the how he did this. But I want to look at what motivated him to run in the first place. I mean, that's not an easy journey. That's not, I mean, that's desert and wilderness. But he books it, he runs there because he's so afraid about what's to happen to him. Fear is an unbelievably powerful motivator. For Elijah, he ran away from the threats. For us, though, fear is often the push that causes us to stay away from the renewal that we desire. I don't know what it is that you fear. It may be fear of the unknown. You hear this idea of renewal. You hear this idea, oh, man, that sounds refreshing. But I have no idea what Justin's talking about right now. And so there's this part of me that just keeps pushing that away. I, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it will mean. I don't know what God's inviting to me. You hear this talk. You may even be afraid because you've seen what it's done in other people, and you're like, I don't want to be like that. You may be afraid of starting a journey to something new and then wanting to turn back. This is the story of the Israelites in the wilderness when they were wandering for 40 years. This is their story. They were being invited to a new renewal where God was going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet they're wandering and they're not experiencing what they thought they should be experiencing at that moment. And they start to have these nostalgic feelings about what happened in the past. Remember the food that we used to eat there? Man, wasn't it so good? Forgetting that they were enslaved desperately for a long time. And so you may be like, man, I don't want to, if I start this journey, I may be, I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to finish it. I'm not, I don't, I wouldn't want to go back. I'm going to want to go to the good old days where I no longer have to think about what's ahead and I could just be part of what once was. You could be afraid of God's, the risky promptings that come from following God. Now, I think of the 90s, for many of us that was us, was full of kids in youth groups that were told to do radical things for God like the amazing missionaries. And yet, they were, those same kids were privately praying God, please don't send me to Africa. Or don't send me there. You could think, oh, go do radical things for God. Look at all these people doing radical things for God, and you should do it too. And you're like, uh, I don't want any of that. That sounds terrifying. So it's probably better if I don't even hear from God, so I don't even have to say no to God. Notice the push. I'm just going to keep myself at a distance. You could be afraid that the closer to God you get, the more punishment you will receive. You may have a picture of God that is one 
and that's a faulty one, that God is looking for every opportunity to punish you if he just gets the chance to do it. He's vindictive. He's angry. Not the gentle, lowly, humble God found in Jesus who longs to give you life. Yes, he convicts, but it's a conviction that is with kindness that leads people towards repentance. So you just may have a faulty view of God that it's like, if I get close to that God, I'm going to be in pain. You may just be afraid of letting go of control. The idea of giving up control of the outcomes of your life may sound absolutely terrifying. So it's better and easier to play it safe rather than to go there. It could be any of these. It could be a combination of these. It could be other things. But what fears do you notice inside yourself that pushes you away from leaning into God's invitation to renewal? If you're willing to name those, recognize them, own them. Yeah, I'm afraid of that. That's true. That's me right there. And if we're willing to bring them to God, God, I'm afraid of that. I don't, I, I, like, Justin's talking about this. And I, I, there's something stern in me. I don't even like it. I even feel it in my body. My heart's fluttering or my chest is tight or I'm, I'm, I'm fidgety because I want to move around to go somewhere else. Just no, part of this week is going to be noticing that. And then if we can bring them to God and say, God, I own this. This is where I'm at. It's amazing to see what God will actually do with people that are honest. But here's the thing. That's the push. Underneath the fear, there's something that's actually pulling you towards God. It's the stirring underneath it. And that is desire. Psalm 37, verses 4 to 5 says this. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust him, and he will act. What is it that you truly, deeply desire? Now, I'm not talking about the surface level's desire for things. We sometimes need to tease out what I call walking the plank. You need to go like, okay, if you got that, what would that give you? And if you got that, what would that give you? And if you got that, what would that give you? Until you're at the irreducible depth of what it is that you desire. This is learning to notice what you're longing for. It's, I want that, but I don't want that because of fear. See the push-pull? I, I, I long for that. I desire that. But man, there's something pushing me away from that thing. Now, here's why we, this is the pull. When we look at what we desire, and this is one of the things why we're afraid of it. When we look at what we desire and we compare it to what's happening in our life at the moment, we see the gap between what we want and what is. Right at that moment is the invitation for renewal. God, I desire that, but I see this. What do you do with that experience? You say, well, God's just not going to give me anything. I'm just going to run away. I'm, I'm out. This isn't working. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. Fill in the blank for you. What is it you do when you notice the distance between desire and reality, present reality? That is the pull. That is the catalyst. The goal for this is to lead towards a desperation where you are willing to do whatever is necessary to pardon. 
See that? Desire, recognize the distance, leads to desperation. That is delighting in the Lord and committing your ways to him. Trusting him with the outcome. I mentioned before my sabbatical that I was going on the spiritual direction retreat. Um, I got to share a little bit about it um, before, and I, but I want to share a bit about what happened a few weeks ago, um, or actually, excuse me, beyond what that was, because we were looking at this very passage in Psalms. Now, there was a lot of learnings about this time. I, I came in, uh, more in touch with my own desires, what it, like why I do what I do. Like, what's my why? What's fueling the underneath it? And I'm getting more and more clarity, and it's, it's wonderful. But after I started to realize what those desires were, and to say it simply, personally, it was to feel at home in my own skin and my own space. Because I, was I wasn't feeling that before, and I can unpack that for another hour, but I'm not going to. And vocationally, it was to build an ecosystem that plants thousands of churches that affects our great-grandchildren. But I started to get this disoriented feeling, and it was really frustrating, like really frustrating. On the last morning, we looked at John 5, which was the healing of the man at the Pool of Siloam, and we also looked at the man of Mark 10, the, where the man was crying out for Jesus to heal him. It led us to the question, how bad do I want to live out the desires that God has given me? Where God leads freely. Where my desire is actually God's desire for me. The point of this was to lead us to realize that our desires are to lead us to desperation. At times, the depth of our desires, excuse me, at times, it's not just the depth of our desire that determines the outcomes of life. It's the desperation. When I realize the desires underneath all the things that I do is the very thing that God has put in there to invite me to himself. When I recognize that pull, when I pay attention to those things, when those are to be met by God, to be touched by God in ways we can feel and know, desire to be given over to God in utter abandonment and trust, these deeper desires of your heart are the truest thing about you as they are in line with the new identity you have in Christ. This is what Barton says. It's truer than your sin. It's truer than your woundedness. It's truer than your net worth, your marital status, or any role or responsibility you hold. Your desire for God and your capacity to get, connect with God as a human soul is the essence of who you are. This is true because God first desired you. Don't miss that. Say, okay, I've got to check my desire. Why is that there in the first place? Because God showed his desire in you. The idea that we can be renewed by God must be first built off the truth that God first desired you. He wanted you to love you, to reveal himself to you, for you to experience life in Christ, for your deepest desires to be found in him and what he's called you to. That, my friends, is the ultimate pull that draws us to a deeper love for God than you and I can ever understand. 
So when we allow ourselves to think about the deeper desires of our heart that's in line with our identity in Christ, we are just responding to his initiative that he's given to us. So what is it that you truly, deeply desire? What is it that you fear? For many of us, these are the very things we need to pay attention to. We need to notice. Because this could be the catalytic moment that invites you on this journey to experiencing something you've never experienced.